right, so one of the most exciting topics in all the scriptures is the return of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you know Christ and you're living for Christ, I know two things about you. Number one, you're really looking forward to Jesus coming back. And number two, I know that just talking about it and just thinking about it absolutely thrills your soul. When you heard that I was going to be talking about the return of Christ last week, you spent this entire week anticipating this message. And I think that's great. I I, I am so blessed by people who are passionate about the things of God. And I'm also personally thankful for those who are specifically passionate about what's known as eschatology, which can be defined as the study of end time events. My hope is that your passion for the things of God would spread like wildfire through this church. You see, here's the bottom line. Whether we believe it or not, and whether we're excited or not, Jesus will come again. He's gonna absolutely come. And when he comes, he's gonna find a people that are ready or perhaps a people that are not ready. And by the way, he may come very soon. As I've often said, if every prophecy about his first coming was literally fulfilled in history, you can bet your bottom dollar that every single prophecy regarding his second coming will be literally fulfilled in history. Therefore, in the light of his return, what kind of people should we be? How should we live? How should we talk? How should we act? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to Titus, he said that in light of the Lord's return, we should, quote, renounce ungodliness. Think about your life the last week. Think about your life the last month, six months. Have you been ungodly? Well, then you need to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And here it is, waiting for our, and I want you to shout it out, go ahead. Our blessed hope. What's that? The appearing of the glory of our, note this, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the great God, and he is the Savior. His divinity is taught all over the New Testament. And so in light of his return, we should be a godly people, a holy people. And no matter how hard it gets in our lives, no matter what life throws at us, man, we can never let go to our blessed hope, which is the confidence that one day our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. Now, John talks about this blessed hope in the section of his letter that we're in today. And so we're gonna start in chapter two, verse 28, and we're gonna read all the way to chapter three, verse three. So I think it's five or six verses that we have uh, for today. Please feel free to grab your phone and look these verses up, but we are in 1 John chapter two, verse 28, through 1 John chapter three and verse three. So right now, if you're looking at verse 28 of chapter two, just say amen. Here we go. And now, little children. So he's writing to the Christian community. Abide in him so that if he appears. Is that what it says? On the count of three, shout out what it really says. One, two, three. So there's no if, and, buts about it. He's gonna come. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now he's writing to Christians. What does that mean? That there's a possibility that some Christians will not be ready for his return, and when he comes, they will shrink from him in shame at his coming. I mean, am I rightly handling the word of truth? Am I just reading what's black and white in the Bible, yes or no? Yeah, I am. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, born again. 
So what's the evidence of being born again? Verse 28, abiding in him. Verse 29, practicing righteousness. Now there's no chapter and verses in the original letter, obviously. So we just keep flowing with the letter. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did, it did not know him. Let me just stop right there. So if you're a born-again Christian, and there's some people in your life, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and they're awkward around you, they just can't figure you out, then, hey, you know why they don't know you? Because people like them didn't know Jesus 2,000 years ago. And it's okay, because when you're saved, and the Spirit of God lives inside of you, people are, e are either, and you're living it out and speaking of the truth and love, people are either attracted to that or they're not. Verse two, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, not if, when he appears, we, born again Christians, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. Why? Because if you live as if he could come today, you're gonna to make choices of godliness and not ungodliness. And so in this section of John's letter, we see hope, hope, hope. <laughs> But this hope is only for those who have, put in their, who have put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now the word hope, uh, whether you're talking about Titus 2.13, the blessed hope, or whether you're talking about 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, uh, it can be defined as this. Hope in the Greek means simply a confident expectation. And so if you're a child of God, and you're living your life in this world, your Father in heaven wants you to live your life with this hope, not hope so hope, not hope the way the culture defines hope, like maybe or if or I hope that happens, no. When the New Testament uses the word hope, it's sure hope, it's a confident expectation. And so as you live your life in this world as God's children, he wants you to have a confident expectation that he will absolutely fulfill every single promise that he has made to us in his word. Therefore, we should have hope, a confident expectation, number one, that the Father loves us. And by the way, do you see the one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit? If you do, say amen here. And so the Father loves us, that's chapter three, verse one. We can have this hope, this confident expectation that the Son will come for us, that's chapter two, verse 28, and we can have this confident expectation that the Spirit will transform us, that's chapter three, verse two. So let's begin with our hope that the Father loves us. Look at it again, please, in chapter three, verse one. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so as you hear me often say, that when a person's going their own way, they're doing their own thing, living for themselves, and they, by the way, the Holy Spirit's drawing them. Because how many of you guys know God is not willing that anybody should perish, but all should come to repentance? I really hope you believe that. I really hope more than three people in this church family believe that God is not willing that anybody should perish. So if you believe that, say amen. amen. So he's drawing us. He loves us. He wants us, even when we're sinners, even when we're not doing the right thing. He loves us, he's drawing us. And so when a person's going their own way, doing their own thing, and they, they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus, they come under conviction that they're sinners in need of a savior, and they turn from their sin to Christ alone believing he's the son of God, believing he paid for their sins on the cross, died for them and rose again the third day. And that person receives Jesus as the savior and Lord of their lives. That guy, that gal becomes a child of God. 
You say, how do you know for sure? Because God promised it. Look at 1 John, I'm sorry, John chapter 12, uh, John chapter one, verse 12. He said, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, go ahead and shout it out, church family, children of God. That's a promise. That means that if you're here today and you've received Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life, as I said last week, his spirit has regenerated you, has sealed you until the day of redemption. He has indwelt you. He has given you spiritual discernment so you know right from wrong, truth from error, false teachers from true teachers. And today, chapter three, verse one, he's also made you a child of God. And that's what I call love. Love. Now, ever since I got saved when I was 17 years old, until this day today, which next year it'll be 40 years. Oh my goodness. But ever since that time, I've always known that the Father loves me. But you know when that truth really hit home for me? It's when I became a father. When my wife and I had Megan and Mandy and Mary, it was then that I experienced a love that I had never experienced before. I experienced the love of a dad for his kids. When those three precious girls came into my life, and I loved them so much, and I adored them so much, at some point, the thought occurred to me that if I, as a fallen human being, love and adore these three girls so much, how much more is the perfect heavenly Father who is infinite love how much more does he love me? Right? It's true. It's true. It's true. And not only does he love me, he loves you too. And ladies and gentlemen, good news, everybody, he'll never stop loving us. This is why Paul said to the church at Rome, he said that I am persuaded, I am confident that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing's gonna separate you from that love. Now I'm grateful that I had a dad who's now in heaven, but I had a dad who loved me and he spent time with me. And so maybe that's not your experience. Maybe you had a dad who was cold and indifferent and ignored you. And so, listen, I, I would say I can feel your pain, but I can't feel your pain. I don't know where you're coming from. But if that's your experience, you need to know this, that you have a Father in heaven who loves you. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, you've got to learn to trust in the promises of God, and he says he loves us, and that settles it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. But that's not all. Not only can we have confidence that the Father loves us, we can have this hope, this constant expectation that the Son will come for us. Let's check that out again in verse uh, 28, chapter two, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, has been born again. And so, he's gonna come back. We don't know the day or the hour. And as I said last week, I can't remember what service I said it in. Jesus said, we don't know the day or the hour. Please don't say, but we can know the month or the year. Please don't do that. Okay, when Jesus was um, fully God, fully man, but when he was on the earth, he didn't even know when he's coming back. Only the Father knew. I'm sure now that he's back at the right hand of the Father, he knows, right? But what we don't know, we're not supposed to know but here's the thing, we should live our lives in light that he could come very soon. That's the message. 
And so what does that mean? That means that we should choose to live out who we are. That was really good, I wanna say that one again. We should choose to live out who we are. Who are we? We're the children of God. So start acting like who you are. Start speaking like who you are. Start treating people like who you are. And so verse 28, if you're abiding in him, little children, and verse 29, if you're practicing righteousness, by the way, both of which, again, are evidences that you've been born again, but if you're abiding in him and you're practicing righteousness, then when he comes, not if he comes, but when he comes, you're not gonna shrink away from him in shame. No, you're gonna be confident and you're gonna be happy. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, if you abide in the faith of him, holding his truth, following his example, and making him your dwelling place, your Lord may come at any hour and you will, what's the last two words there? Welcome him. You see it? And so this is very applicable, right? If you and I are abiding in him, if you and I are holding on to the promises of his word, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter how hard it gets, we're not letting go of the promises of his word. If you and I are reading the gospels and we're following the example of Jesus Christ through our lips and our lives, then when he appears, we're gonna be so happy. We're gonna be so confident as he takes us up into heaven. But if we're not abiding in him, if we're not holding on to his promises, if we're not following the example of Jesus Christ. We are not gonna be confident when he returns. We are not gonna be confident when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How many of you guys know the New Testament teaches that we will all, Christians, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ? If you believe that, say amen, please. Okay, so it's gonna happen. There's two major judgments in the Bible, there's a, for Christians, there's a judgment seat of Christ. For unbelievers, there's a great white throne judgment. Okay, and so as believers, one day we will stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. But if you have not been abiding in him, if you have not been holding on to his truth, if you have not been following the example of Jesus Christ, listen, you will shrink from him in shame. That's what it says in verse 28. I am not mishandling God's word. I'm just teaching what it says. You're gonna shrink from him in shame. You're gonna stand at the judgment seat of Christ with no confidence as you watch your works like wood, hay, and stubble burn up and you are gonna suffer loss. You are not gonna receive any crowns even though you're still saved and you're gonna go into heaven but like fire, 1 Corinthians 3.15. And so man, this gets me riled up, have you noticed? Because I believe that God is worthy of the best that we have in this life. I, and I know you do too, I wanna live my life in such a way, and we're not talking about perfection. And by the way, I'm not setting a standard so high that you and I can't get to it. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, born again Christian. Therefore, you are able to live the kind of life that God wants you to live. We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about faithfulness here. And I wanna live my life in such a way that one day I'll be confident when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I know that I will receive crowns because man, I want those crowns. I wanna cast them back at the feet of Jesus because he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of it all. Man, here's the thing. In this church, there's a lot of spiritually apathetic people. And you think just going to church and sitting in a pew and checking a box that you've done your religious duty. And nothing could be further from the truth. If I, if I was able, I'd try to shake you out of your spiritual apathy. But that wouldn't be right. So I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. And if you're here today and you haven't been abiding in him and you haven't been holding on to his truth and you haven't been following the example of Jesus Christ in your life, today's the day that I hope that you find Finally get it, that you realize that God is worthy 
of the best that you have. And from now until the day you take your last breath, you're gonna live for him as if you can receive those crowns and you can cast them at his feet someday. Because it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. It's not if it happens, it's when it happens. And so when he returns, what is it gonna look like? Paul told us, really good news. He said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will die first. What does that mean? The dead in Christ, that's those who have taken their last breath, they're already dead, right? Absent from the body means to be present with who? The Lord, their bodies in the ground, their spirits in heaven. So whenever this happens, no one knows the day or the hour, but whenever this happens, their spirit their soul will reunite with their remains and they will rise first. Then we, can everybody say the word we? I love that word we because the apostle Paul is writing this. He lived in the first century AD. Therefore, we know from the word we that Paul lived with the constant expectation that the Lord could come back in his lifetime. This is called the eminent rapture. Before you just put up your wall, I wanna ask you to hear me out to the end. Then we who are alive and remain shall be, can you shout out the next two words, please? Together with them, who's that? The dead in Christ, who are rising out of their graves. To be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now the word caught up in the Greek, it's harpazo. And that Greek word literally means to seize, to carry off by force, to snatch away. It's harpazo in the Greek. But right around 400 AD, a brilliant man named Jerome took the Bible, he took the Hebrew in the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament and he translated the Bible into Latin. The Latin Vulgate became, uh, became the Bible um, of the uh, a church for a thousand years or so. Now when, when Jerome was writing um, and translating the Bible into Latin, when he got to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, he translated harpazo, caught up, with the Latin word rapimur. Now, what English word does that sound like? The rapture. I'm saying that because the rapture has taken a lot of heat lately in social media, YouTube. A lot of people are very flippant about this rapture. They'll tell you erroneously that it was just made up in the last 200 years, and they'll try to tear it all apart. But you need to know, ladies and gentlemen, that the rapture is clearly taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Now, when will it take place? Well, the rapture is the next eschatological event on God's calendar. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment, though we don't know the day or the hour, we don't know the month or the year, we don't even know the decade. Okay, and so just so you know a little bit about your pastor, I'm not one of these guys that takes every single news clipping and tries to say, he's coming back tomorrow, that's just not who I am. But I am persuaded by, as I exegete the scriptures, of the truth that I'm talking to you about today. And so first it's the rapture, and then it's gonna be the tribulation, and then it's the second coming, the millennium, and then the new heavens and the new earth. And please notice the rapture and the second coming are two phases of the Lord's return, and they're separated by the tribulation, which we know from Daniel 9 is a seven-year period, the last seven years, horrible years of history as we know it. So when we study the entire New Testament, we see there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. For example, the rapture will occur, please say the word before, before God's wrath falls during the tribulation. But the second coming will come, please say after, after God's wrath falls during the tribulation. In fact, the second coming of Jesus Christ at the Battle of Armageddon is the culmination of the wrath of God that is poured out on people, Romans chapter one, who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And so 
These, there's a difference between these two events. Regarding his bride, the church, it's a different story. Paul wrote this. You should memorize this. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means before the wrath falls, we go up. Why? Because we're his bride, if you're born again. You're his bride. Therefore, you and I are not destined for wrath. Now, some people, they don't like what I'm saying. And, and they'll say, well, you don't get it, Pastor. What makes you so special that you're not gonna endure persecution? Jesus said there's gonna be lots of persecution. Listen, that's not the issue that's on the table right now. I'm not talking about persecution at all. There is not a verse in the Bible that promises that we will be protected from the wrath of man. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. By the way, that's a promise from the word of God, but I've never gone into some, a Christian's house and seen that promise on the refrigerator. But it's true. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you're gonna suffer persecution. And if things keep going the way they're going in our culture today, you, you gotta believe the fact, you gotta know the fact that in your lifetime, you're gonna receive some persecution. You're gonna receive the wrath of man. But that's not what's on the table right now. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm not talking about the wrath of man. I'm talking about the wrath of God. We, as the bride of Jesus Christ, cannot, will not, never will be partakers of the wrath of God. You say, well, why? Here's why. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Because the eternal Lagos, the eternal Son of God, left time, left eternity, and entered time and space through a virgin's womb and lived a perfect life and willingly went to a Roman cross. And as he hung on that cross between heaven and hell, he took the justice, the wrath of God against your sin and mine as our substitute. And to make sure that everybody knows that that sacrifice took, he got up and marched out of the tomb victorious three days later. He received the wrath. He received the wrath so his bride would not receive the wrath. It's called grace. It's the age we live in, the age of grace. Now some people are like, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that God has wrath. Well, ladies and gentlemen, number one, you don't get a vote. Number two, if you have, let's say, a five-year-old and you take him to the bus stop and somebody drives 80 miles an hour through that school zone while the lights are flashing, you're gonna hope to God, number one, the police catch him, and number two, that a judge will put that guy behind bars. Why? Because they drove 80 miles an hour through a school zone and put your kid's life at risk. And if the judge just winked at that guy and said, get out of here, get out of my courtroom, you would demand another judge. Well, if you are so just, why do you think God is not just? God is not just infinite love, he's infinite justice. And the wages of sin is death. But thank God, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, and Jesus Christ died in our place. It's called the substitutionary atonement, and we thank God for it. And I really think everybody right now should thank Jesus for his sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for taking the wrath of God. So we get salvation, unbelievers get wrath, just as a husband protects his bride from harm, Jesus will snatch us out of this world before the wrath falls. And then, ladies and gentlemen, when the restrainer is removed, I'm talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, when the restrainer is removed, many scholars believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the church. When the restrainer is removed, 
Then, 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 8, then the man of sin is revealed. First the restrainer is removed, then the man of sin, the antichrist, is revealed. So we, as the church, we're not looking for the antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. The blessed hope of our Lord Jesus Christ who paid it all so we could be saved. What I'm teaching you today is very consistent with, with what Jesus promised the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia. My favorite church, remember the seven churches, seven letters of seven churches in Revelation two and three? So the church of Philadelphia, we'll put it up on the screen. Jesus said through John to this church, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you, and please shout out the underlined word, from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Historically speaking, there has never been an hour of trial, in other words, horrendous suffering that has come on the whole world. We've seen cataclysmic events. We've seen tsunamis and hurricanes and pestilence and earthquakes in certain parts of the world, but we have never seen horrendous suffering come upon the entire world. It's gonna happen at the tribulation period, the last seven years of history as we know it, described in Revelation 6 through 19. Somebody says, well, COVID, that came on the whole world. Well, I grant you that COVID was a global pandemic. And I'm very sorry for those of you that are here who may have lost friends or loved ones in that pandemic. But with all due respect to those who went home to be with the Lord because of COVID, listen, COVID, it's part of the bad English, it ain't nothing compared to the tribulation that's coming. If you're not saved and you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness right now and it's all like blah, 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 whatever, what time is it, I gotta get out of here, right? If that's you and you're left behind, when you look out at St. James Boulevard or you go over to Tradition or you go down to Stewart or Vero, the whole thing is gonna be a war zone. And those of you who've been to war, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But thank God, Jesus comes and he takes his bride out before the wrath falls. We will be ek, kept away from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. What I'm teaching you this afternoon is consistent with the chronology of Revelation. You see, you think about the word church and how it's used in the book of Revelation. By the way, I've taught verse by verse the book of Revelation at least two times. Um, the latest teaching is on our website for free along with Daniel, verse by verse, because you'll never understand Revelation without Daniel. So both of those books, verse by verse, are taught on our website for free. I encourage you to check it out. But when you think about the word church in the book of Revelation, you see that in chapters two and three, you see the word church a lot. Church, 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 church. Why? Because Jesus, through John, writes seven letters to seven what? Churches. That's chapter two and three. But then in chapter four, verses one and two, John, he's on the island of Patmos. He hears a voice like a trumpet say, come up here. And he's snatched up into heaven. Okay, I don't know about you, but that sure looks to me like a picture of the rapture. And he's there, and guess what he sees in chapters four and five of Revelation? He sees believers like you and I worshiping the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. <laughs> chapters four and five. Then in chapter six, all the way to chapter 19, which describes the tribulation period, the opening of the seals, the pour, uh, blowing of the trumpets, the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. In that time, chapter six through 19, you never once see the word church. Why? Again, pardon the bad English, because we ain't here. We're in heaven, worshiping the Lord, blessing the Lord. And listen, if this doesn't excite you at all, Either number one, you're an introvert, and I relate to you because I'm an introvert, or number two, listen, you just, man, you're not being moved spiritually. And here, here's what I wanna ask you to do. Ask yourself, have I ever realized that I was lost? Have I ever realized that the wages of sin in my life is death? 
Have I ever realized and believed the fact that my sin deserves me to go to hell? Have I ever, ever come to grips with that? Because here's why I'm saying that right now. Because if you've never admitted that, you're not saved. You cannot be saved until you admit and realize that you're lost. And when you know that you're lost, and then you realize what Jesus did on the cross for you, that's when you get excited. That's when you worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. That's when you are praising his name, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. And so ladies and gentlemen, listen, the word church isn't there in six through 19 that describes the tribulation period. The next time the word church is used is in Revelation 22:16. 16 after the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, which we all will be a part of. And so I hope this is making sense to you this morning, but there's one more difference between the rapture and the second coming I wanna bring to light today if you're taking notes. And that is at the rapture, Jesus will come as a groom in the clouds to take his bride to the Father's house. At the second coming, he's gonna come as a warrior completely different picture here. A warrior to the earth to bring judgment on the nations. Now the first one at the top of your screen, we already talked about that in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so one day, Jesus, not if, he will come back, he'll put the brakes on at the clouds and he will snatch us up, the bride, to the church. And then where are we gonna go? You know what amazes me? Is that some of you already have your vacations planned for next summer. Some of you guys are so excited about your vacations, and I get excited about my vacations too, okay? But, but here, here, here's a thought. Could we please try to be more heavenly-minded than earthly-minded, and could we even think about and plan and dream about our future, which is gonna last forever and ever and ever? And so where are we gonna go after he snatches us up to the clouds? Well, Jesus knows, and he told us. He said to disciples like you and me, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. A completely different picture than Jesus on a white horse coming back at the Battle of Armageddon. And so what is that completely different picture? Well, John saw a vision of it. He saw heaven opened and a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is the wrath of God. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's gonna come back He's gonna take back what belongs to him and he's gonna make what went wrong, he's gonna make it right. And we praise his name for that. Now, I could go on and on and on and on forever because this is one of my favorite subjects. Um, when I was a teenager, actually 20 I think, 19 or 20, I went to Bible college and I took eschatology and I read a book like that thick, cover to cover called Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost and here's, here's what he did. I was so glad I got this when I was young. He fairly um, described every eschatological end times position there is within Christendom. Okay, so if you're a nerd and you like reading Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost, and then of course he showed biblically why he, he's with the Lord now, is what's called a pre-trib, uh, believes in a pre-trib rapture and a pre-millennial position. So I read that and I was convinced. And that was way back when I was 20. I'm 56 years old now. And listen, one time a guy took me to a conference that was teaching something else and I thought, oh, okay. But within a week or so, I was back to what I believe the Bible teaches. And so I've never changed my position. And I wanna encourage you 
to, to, to listen. If you take the historical, grammatical interpretation of the word of God, along with all of its figures of speech and metaphors, so you just make, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you get nonsense, if that's the way you approach the Bible, then what I'm saying is true. But if you try to impose your own, own ideas on the Bible and try to spiritualize this verse and make it say whatever you want, then you're gonna come up with different positions. And so I wanna give you some resources of people that you can study regarding the imminent rapture. And most of these guys are now with the Lord. So Adrian Rogers, Charles Ryrie, Charles Stanley, just went home to be with the Lord, I think, last year. Chuck Swindoll, founder of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith. David Guzik, David Jeremiah, the guy who wrote the book, Dwight Pentecost. Ed Heinsohn, who was here like three years ago. He's with Jesus now. Greg Laurie, John MacArthur, John Phillips, John Walvoord, he's probably the greatest theologian when it comes to end times, but no one knows his name. Norm Geisler, a personal hero of mine, Robert Leitner, Skip Heitzig, Tommy Ice, Tony Evans, Warren Wearsby, I could list a hundred more, but I wanted to put those names up there because a lot of their resources are online. Please don't Google your theology. Please don't go to YouTube to find out what you believe. Here's some really solid men of God, and I'm sure, because most, mo uh, most of them are in heaven right now, I'm sure these guys heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And we should honor these guys, right? Here's why, because so many pastors, ladies and gentlemen, they're just not making it, they're falling. It's an epidemic in the church. And these are some of the guys that stayed true to the end, and so anything they write about the end times is gold, and I wanna encourage you also to go to God Questions, lots of articles on the rapture. Here's your last point. We can have hope, a confident expectation, not only that the Father loves us, not only that the Son will come for us, but finally the Spirit will transform us. We see that in chapter three, verse two. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is and everyone who has this hope in him or thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I don't, can't remember if I said it in this service or another service, but if you live as if he could come today, you're gonna make godly decisions and not ungodly decisions. But when he appears, we shall be like him. That's what you call transformation. And by the way, it's the spirit of God's job, role, to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of Christ, and to complete that job at the day of Jesus Christ. Again, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So when sanctification becomes glorification, you and I will receive a brand new immortal body, and when we see him, we're gonna be like him. So we're done in 1 John. I wanna close in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you guys could move over there in your smartphones or move over there in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, so what are we doing now? Well, the two classic passages about the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, where we're going right now. And so we're gonna finish up with these promises, verses 51 through 57. Please stay with me to the end. This, this really, really is exciting here. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. If you found it, say amen. amen. Okay, here we go. Verse 51, he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now that's interesting. Why is it a mystery? Because the rapture was not taught in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. So it's new revelation that was revealed um, from Jesus to the apostles. And as you heard Pastor Will teach three weeks ago or so, 
that the church, the New Testament church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so the revelation, thank God, is now the New Testament. The canon's closed. There's no more new revelation. Okay, so you gotta get that. Otherwise, you're gonna get off into some crazy teachings and also some crazy practices. So, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be, what's the last word in verse 51? Changed. Can everybody say changed? Because that's, that's in your future. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, there it is again, we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And Paul must have been a great preacher because he is in preaching mode right now. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. I can see Paul, and there's death, and he's just like going for it, putting death in its place, because Jesus Christ gives us the victory over death. Now, he says we're gonna be changed. What does that mean in the Greek? It means to exchange one thing for another, to transform. And whenever I think about this, I think about a caterpillar. Can you guys imagine being a caterpillar? Can you imagine having legs that size? I mean, how long would it take you to get around? How long would it take you if there's a plant that you want to go to to cross the street? Like a year, right? And you have to avoid all those cars. And you're walking across the street and you look up and you see a bird fly by and you think, man, I wish I could do that. Or man, I feel like I was created for something more than this just crawling around on the ground. But then, good news, you start to feel something different inside. And so you crawl up a plant, and you attach yourself to a twig. And then while you're sticking uh, to that twig, then all of a sudden, you begin to exude, you, you, you begin to shed your skin, but then you begin to exude this sticky stuff called chrysalis. And eventually it forms hard around you like a cocoon. And you're in that cocoon for a really long time. So long, it seems as if you're dead. But then one day, the cocoon begins to shake and it cracks open. And the next thing you know, something totally new comes forth, a butterfly. Now listen, this is what, this is what it means to be changed. And all of a sudden, you find that you're beautiful. And all of a sudden you find out, I've got wings. And so you jump off the twig and you soar off into the sky. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an illustration of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So what happened to the caterpillar? It was a metamorphosis. He exchanged one body for another. He was transformed and on one glorious day in the future, we are gonna be changed. We're gonna be transformed. We're gonna exchange these mortal bodies for immortal bodies when Jesus comes for us in the clouds. It's gonna be absolutely amazing. Paul put it this way. He said, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So when he shall appear, 1 John 3, verse 2, we shall be like him, for we're gonna see him as he is. So what was he like? Again, you plan for your vacations, great. But plan for the eternal vacation. What are you gonna be like, born-again Christian? Well, you're gonna be like him. What was he like when he was resurrected? What was he like when he was glorified? Well, we know he died on the cross around 33 years old, so he's in the prime of his life. We know that in his resurrected body, he was recognized by others. We know that he conversed with his disciples. We know, maybe the best thing of all, he ate food. He appeared and disappeared. 
He walked through locked doors. He ascended into heaven. When he shall appear, we're going to be like him in the prime of our lives, recognized by others, conversing with our loved ones, eating food, appearing and disappearing at will, walking through walls. And he ascended. Does that mean we're going to be able to fly? I hope so. We'll find out. But listen, he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What does that mean? No more doctors, no more medication, no more hospitals, no more graveyards. No more getting old. No more aches and pains and holding your back as you get out of bed. It's taking me longer and longer to get out of bed. No more disease. No more death. We're gonna exchange mortality for immortality. What does that mean? That means that when we see him, we're gonna be immortal, invincible, incorruptible, indestructible. We're gonna be impeccable, which means that our sin nature will be completely eradicated and we will be in the presence of holiness. But the best part of heaven is we will see Jesus. The scars in his hand forever reminding us of the price that was paid for our sins. And so as we're waiting for that day, don't ever let go of your blessed hope by way of review. Never let go of the hope, the, sure, the surety that the Father loves you, that the Son's gonna come for you, and the Spirit is gonna finish his work of transformation on that great day and all God's people said.